0: Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the AFRICA program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council.
1: And I'm Nicole Willette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and like Judd, have served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations.
0: This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time.
1: This episode is about Guinea, and we're delighted to be joined by Phil Carter, a former U.S. ambassador to Guinea and Cote d'Ivoire, as well as deputy to the commander for civil military engagements at Africa.
0: Nicole, why don't you walk us through the history of U.S. policy towards Guinea?
1: Sure. The United States made a major misstep at the start of its relationship with Guinea. At the behest of the French, who were frustrated that Guinean leader Sekou Toure rejected membership in the French community, the United States delayed its recognition of Guinea by two months and didn't appoint an ambassador for nearly a year into the country's existence. This produced a great deal of resentment towards the United States. And it contributed to the country's turn to the Soviet Union and other communist bloc countries. The Eisenhower administration's narrow approach to Africa and suspicions about Guinea's Cold War allegiances didn't help smooth these challenges. In the 1960s, Secretary made two official trips to the United States. In his first visit, he traveled to five U.S. cities, as well as Washington, D.C. He was treated to a black-tie reception with President Eisenhower and met then-Senator John F. Kennedy at Disneyland. His engagement with Kennedy at the Magic Kingdom and its subsequent meetings with JFK at the White House went a long way in resetting relations. However, the good feeling didn't last. As one former diplomat noted, a secutore blew hot and cold towards the U.S. In 1966, Guinea's foreign minister was detained in Ghana, and in what remains an inexplicable form of retaliation, Guinea detained the U.S. ambassador in Conakry because the foreign minister had flown on an American airline. When the ambassador was released from detention and returned to the U.S. for consultations, Tory kicked out the Peace Corps and more embassy staff. Relations worsened further in 1970s when the Portuguese invaded Guinea to go after rebel forces fighting for independence in Guinea-Bissau and Capo Verde. Tory became more paranoid and lashed out at the United States and other countries, a situation which persisted for several years. Relations slowly warmed again in 1980, and Vice President Bush even attended Tory's funeral in 1984. U.S. ties to Guinea's new military leader, Lassana Kante, mainly revolved around regional security, as well as an enduring interest in Cold War competition and investment in Guinea's bauxite sector. The United States assisted with the inflow of refugees from Sierra Leone and Liberia and trained the Guinean military to defend itself against rebel incursions from its war-torn neighbors. When Kante died in 2008, after 24 years in power, the United States pressed the country's junta leaders to swiftly hand over power to civilians. In 2010, longtime opposition figure Alpha Conde became president. He was invited to the White House twice. The United States also worked closely with Conde's government to respond to the deadly Ebola outbreak. Conde's Democratic credentials have been dented over time, in part because he amended the Constitution to run for a third term. The Trump administration sent mixed messages about its position on this unconstitutional power grab, but others, including Russia, didn't miss the opportunity To ingratiate themselves with Condé and described the president as legendary. So Judd, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure?
0: There's so much here. You already talked about us following the French into uh, not recognizing Guinea and setting us back, but you also mentioned the remarkable engagement from President Kennedy and the trip that Sico Touré did across America. But in preparing for this podcast, I found something interesting in the mid-80s that I wanted to flag. So one of our biggest problems was that the Soviet fleet would fly into Conakry. So Conakry, Luanda, Angola, and Havana, Cuba, those were their three stations, and that was allowed them to do surveillance across the Atlantic. And so for a very long time, U.S. ambassadors tried to get Siko to close this. And eventually, one ambassador went to him and said, look, this isn't Fair, we need to have fair play here. Remember that relationship you have with JFK, this historic relationship. Also, we're doing a, a lot to help your country, and this is a big problem for us. And Sikoturi, despite blowing hot and cold, I, I guess this is blowing hot, and agreed to shut down uh, the Soviet access to the Conakry Airport. So I thought that was a, an interesting example from the past, of sort of putting together our history, what were our interests, and what we're doing proactively, positively for Guinea. So Ambassador Carter, what do you think the Biden administration's strategy towards Guinea should be?
2: It's complex, but I think what we need to look at is rebuilding or reinforcing the institutional pillars for democracy and good governance in that country. We focus a lot on state institutions, but I think as you look at the issue of uh, Guinea's development, both social, economic, you get to see that a lot of the, the critical institutions that we that are necessary for economic growth, for democracy, are just not there. And so I think things like focusing on education, focusing on local empowerment, focusing on basic infrastructure for improved communication. I mean, for example... You have the university town of Hong Kong, and there's no power. I mean, it's hard to have a university when there's constant power outages. So that's one thing. I think the other thing to look at is the challenges of Guinea politically, economically, demographically. Put it on the front line with regard to some of the tensions and the crisis that we see in the Sahel. It's going to spill into Guinea. It's going to spill into the other coastal West African states. And we need to have a regional approach to deal with that crisis but not in a typical military fashion. Guinea doesn't need military support. It needs development support. It needs uh, support in terms of governance because really the crisis of the Sahel is a governance problem. And with poor governance that we see in Guinea, a disaster is looming there with regard to the problems of extremism. Okay, Nicole, how do we make that happen?
1: As Ambassador Carter said, you know, this is really about Democracy and Governance 101. We have consistently talked about through episodes, particularly around West Africa and the Sahel, the need for really basic supports around democracy and governance combined with those around economic development and empowerment. And that's particularly important in these countries where we are also seeing an increase of potential threat around destabilization.
2: I think the way to look at it is the political challenges that we see in Guinea is largely between two ethnic groups. The Malenque, which Alpha Conde is with, and the Fulani, the Pool, as the French call them. And those two groups don't see eye to eye. It's always been this yin and yang thing. And really, when you look at how governance can work, it's really you have to look at those minority groups that can actually kind of bring those two large parties together. That's really what has to happen. But you have to build the institutions for effective dialogue. You have to build the institutions that are resilient to the machinations of an autocrat like Conde. So, you know, how do you do that? And, and that's you're absolutely right, Nicole. you got to go back to the basics, to the foundations, looking at community groups, women's groups, looking at, uh, on the development side, education, particularly girls' education. You know, we need to have a massive effort to kind of push those issues forward. Uh, we're not doing it. We, we do pixie dust. And I think if we look at it in a regional context, because people are moving around. If, if anything, people, Americans should take back from the Ebola crisis was that That virus moved around a lot of borders and Guinea was at the center of it. And, you know, if a virus can move like that, why can't our development dollars and our uh, social engagement move in the same way? I mean, it's it's ironic that uh, the viruses don't know borders, but we seem to stop and we need to kind of have a regional approach here.
0: I think with Guinea, and this is in other cases too, right? There's going to be a segment of the U.S. government that's just going to be entirely focused on the counterterrorism problem, the extremist problem that Ambassador Carter mentioned, right? There's another set of stakeholders that are going to focus on Russian investment in the bauxite sector or Chinese interest in ports. And then there's going to be another group that is going to be you know, fairly anti-Guinea, anti-Alpha Conde for sort of his anti-democratic behavior. And so one of the big questions is, how do we find a couple of issues that actually we can find consensus on that can address some of these issues together without letting, you know, one wag the dog? And I think that requires, as you said, both of you said, getting back to basics, but it's really making an assessment on all of our various interests.
1: Ambassador Carter, do you have one big idea, even an outlandish idea, to put on the table? other than more bilats at Disneyland, which clearly are needed.
2: Yeah, I think there's, there's quite a few. Demography is destiny for Africa. And you need to pair that up with climate change and with some of the, the, the social challenges we see tied to poor governance in the Sahel, such as the violence that's there. The thing that really I think we need to look at is what are those specific interventions that can foster growth, at the same time reinforce uh, social development for political and improved governance, and political towards democracy. And to me, that is focusing on girls' education. You know, we talk a lot about it. We talk about things, but really, if you, and it's hard, just like we've mentioned before, there's so many areas to make interventions to improve. But if you're looking at one or two issues that move across those stovepipes, all right, and that's really what we have to talk about. We have to, you know, for some reason, we can't seem to do one more than one thing at once, right? So we have to be able to be bigger than that and we have to be able to look at things holistically. What are those interventions that affect all of those little interests? And, and, and what are those interventions that we can use to marshal our leadership role and also bring the international community together, including Russia, including China? And that's girls' education. That's dealing with the issue of gender inequality. When I was an ambassador there, you know, they talk about outreach. I did inreach in my embassy to deal with the issue of female genital mutilation and because i that was a major issue that was there that affects more women than hiv aids in that country so how do we how do we look at those issues so you know to me dealing with those those two fundamental questions gender inequality and girls education they're tied people can say women's empowerment but so far we haven't been very effective there but focusing on the basics focusing on the grassroots and is that is that a panacea no but from that we can develop confidence, trust with uh, our beneficiaries in Africa, as well as with social groups that are there. And we don't go in, we go in with a hard, cold view to what we're looking at. There are a lot of civil society groups in Africa that are platforms for individuals. What we really want to find are those that are, that are truly representative, that we can engage to advance these issues that, frankly, you'd be hard to press to find someone who's against the issue of girls' education. Or gender or addressing the question of gender inequality, not with the 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 rubric that we have in the states. We're, we're talking about it in a local context. Um, it crosses a crosses it cuts across religious, ethnic, and regional um, considerations. So I think that's important. I mean that's one thing to look at. If you're looking at a second thing, it's how do we effectively prepare Africa's youth for the rest of the century? Because right now we're failing. Uh, Africa is failing. Africa's leaders are failing. The international community is failing. You know, there's an infrastructure financing gap of, what, $180 billion a year in Africa? That's, what, almost $2 trillion over the next 10? Um, how, is, how is that going to be met? It's not uh, the Chinese Belt and Road uh, Initiative. It's got to be something else. It's not going to be met with African leaders and corporations sending most of their money outside of Africa, where you have that imbalance between development assistance and illicit outflows. So you need to think about that hard and uh, bring in others. I mean, this is the other thing. Africa is a collective effort. It's not an American effort. It's an international effort. And we have a role, um, despite some of the major mistakes we've made in the past, such as Afghanistan and, and our own challenges domestically to have an honest conversation with interested parties about how to address these important social issues that have tremendous political and security implications for the continent and for, our, and for the future generations of Americans. So Ambassador
0: Carter, our last question. Guinea is unique in the sense that our first two ambassadors, both of them political appointees, John Morrow and then William Atwood, both wrote biographies or memoirs of their time there. And I don't think that's happened anywhere else in sub-Saharan Africa. And believe me, I spent a lot of time trying to figure that out. So what is so compelling about being the U.S. representative to Guinea? Do you have a book? You wanna you want to give us a little preview of your own memoirs? I mean, what's, what, what's, what's special that is prompting these?
2: There will never be a memoir from Ambassador Phil Carter. <laughs> Good diplomats don't tell tales like that. I think what it is is that, you know, most of the Guinean budget is spent in Conakry. Like when I was there, like 90% of it. So nothing goes to the countryside. But when you go to the countryside, it is staggeringly beautiful. I mean, the interior of Guinea is remarkable. I mean, the Futa Jalon, these areas, uh, you go to this forestier region. I mean, it's a rich country in terms of natural resources. You talked about bauxite, but you know, they have a good port system outside of Conakry. They have nickel, they have iron, they have tremendous agricultural resources that have been largely untapped. And in this age of climate change, in this age of of diversified economic growth, there's a lot to do there. It's a fascinating place. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to
0: podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa.
2: Thanks.